welcome to the first official episode of the JL Core podcast. I am your host, Christiana, and I am so excited to be finally recording this podcast episode. Full disclosure, I already recorded it last week and then I was unsatisfied with the way it sounded. So here I am doing it again, and it will be a miracle if I ever actually successfully publish podcast episodes, but I'm sure it will happen if it's meant to. In this episode, I'm going to be unpacking the name of the podcast and kind of the meaning behind the name, where the inspiration came from, so that it's not confusing because I know at first glance, especially if you're not familiar with JL and the story of Judges 4, it can be a little confusing. And then I'm also going to be sharing my personal testimony of um, coming out of fundamentalism or the IFB church specifically. So I hope that this is encouraging to you, and if you have a similar background, you may be able to relate to some of the things I'm saying, but also with that in mind, there might be a need for a trigger warning because some of the things I talk about might be a little disturbing to some people, especially if you have um, some trauma related to a Christian fundamentalist background. So just be aware of that, and without further ado, let's get into it. All right, I am going to give some background for the background story, which we are going to find in Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 4. And this is where we meet Deborah, who is the one who kind of precedes JL in the story. And she's an important character because she is the one who prophesies about JL. So that's why we need to start out with her story so we can get up to where we meet our girl JL, who we love and adore. Anyway, starting in verse 4, it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinuam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman." Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Part of what I love about this story is that, um, you know, it's like pointing out that there are no strong men in Israel at this time. And this this man will not even go to battle without Deborah. He's like, I'm not even going to go if you're not going to come with me. Like, I, he's like, I need a girl to go with me, um, by the way. So please come. Um, and I just think that's funny because it it just seems like he was not a very brave person. But anyway... Deborah prophesies that Sisera is going to fall into the hands of a woman. So I'm going to skip ahead to verse 17 now. After the battle has been happening, Sisera has gotten down from his chariot and he is running away. And it says, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael the wife of Heber took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. 
Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, with the tent peg in his temple. All right, so there's the story of Jael and Sisera. And this story is, it's, you know what? It's not the most glorious story for sure. Like, this is a war story. It's a murder. This is something that, um, that we probably shouldn't necessarily glory in. And so I want to make it very clear that as I am using the inspiration of JL, I'm not trying to highlight necessarily what she did so much as how she did it. And um, I have had people ask me before, they're like, well, why would you want to, you know, base a ministry on the foundation of JL? Like she is someone who murdered someone who trusted her. I was like, that, that makes it sound, you know, pretty bad actually. But I think my goal is to highlight more of the kind of courage it takes to do something that you know is right, even though it's scary and it puts you in harm's way and you could potentially be hurt. Um, and I, I think that's what JL really highlights for us is having the courage to stand up for what's right, even if you have to do it alone and do it afraid. And so it's not so much for me. I'm not I'm not looking at the story of JL and thinking, wow, this woman was so awesome because she killed a man while he was sleeping. That is very brave. No, it's it's more about like she had what it took to recognize the situation for what it was and and say, if no one else is going to do this, I will do it. I will stand up for what I know I have to do and I will carry it through, even though it's scary and even though... I, you know, could be hurt in the process. Like, I know what I have been called to do. And there was a prophecy that this was going to happen. Deborah had prophesied. And I don't know if JL knew about the prophecy beforehand. It's unlikely. It doesn't say whether or not she knew. But even if she did know, it still would take a lot of courage. And so my um, my handle on Instagram is uh, woman of valor. And that comes from... Proverbs 31, in the original Hebrew, the words um, in the first verse of, or in Proverbs 31.10, it says, who can find a woman of valor? In most of our English translations, it says, um, who can find a woman of virtue? And while I think the word virtue is is a good word to use there as well, because obviously like we want to be a virtuous person, um, the word valor just imparts so much of a deeper spiritual meaning and what it, it looks like to be a woman of God in an environment of spiritual warfare. And the word valor means to have great courage in the face of danger, especially in battle. And so, you know, we're faced with a lot of spiritual warfare every day. And as we go out into the world and as we put on the armor of God as um, women of God, as men of God, we need to be a person of valor and a person who has great courage in the face of danger and battle and warfare because that's what we're facing every day. So the inspiration for the name JL Kaur comes from the story of JL, but not because she killed someone, not because she 
was brave enough to use a hammer for a murder, but because she was able to see the need and see what what needed to be accomplished and she was able to follow through with what God had called her to do. And I think that is what each of us needs to find out in our own lives. Like, what is it that God has called us to do? And what is it going to take for us to follow through in that? Even if we're afraid and even if we don't understand it, even if we're like, why did God call me to this specific thing? Like, I I don't necessarily want to do this thing. I've had that happen in my life many times where I've thought, this does not make any sense. Why am I being called to this? And God doesn't always give us a reason, but he always asks us to trust and then to follow through on what he's called us to do. So woman of valor, I think JL fits that description fairly well. Um, She was a woman of valor, a woman who had great courage in the face of danger. And look where it got her. She ended up saving her nation. And eventually the Israelites were able to have victory over that enemy that they were facing. And so I think it's really important to understand that each of us has a role to fulfill in the kingdom of God. And in order to move the kingdom forward, we have to be willing to say yes to what God is calling us to. So with all of that in mind, I'm going to share my own personal testimony now, just so that you can understand a little bit more about who I am and why I resonate so deeply with JL and why I'll probably end up naming like my future daughter after her if I ever have a daughter. (laughs) Um, But Yeah, that's the story of JL. That's the inspiration behind the name. So now I'm going to get into my personal testimony, which is a little bit, a little bit more difficult for me to talk about, but let's get into it. Before I get into my testimony, I just want to remind you to follow my podcast on Spotify so you can get notified every time I post a new episode. And also follow me on Instagram at Woman of Valor so you can keep up with me there and hear more of my testimony and the same things I talk about, which is going to be church issues, legalism, freedom in Christ, Christian fundamentalism, etc. So make sure to follow me there. All right, my testimony starts way back in. 1998, I was born to two very loving parents in upstate New York, um, Rochester to be specific, and we were part of an IFB church up there until we moved when I was around eight years old. And I started singing in church when I was around three or four, I think is when I sang my first solo in church. My mom is a songwriter and my dad is a very visionary person and he had this dream for her to make albums and publish her music and so she started doing that when I was very small and I was the first album I was ever on, I was five years old and I sang a song that she wrote for me called The King's Daughter and it's you can find it on YouTube. I think it's really cute. Um, but I have always been part of ministry ever since I was very young. And my dad wanted us to expand our music ministry. So we moved down to South Carolina to um, to try to do that, to be part of, you know, the Bible Belt down there. And our music didn't take off the way that we had anticipated it, mostly because we didn't foresee the culture shock that we were going to go through and also the fact that Southern Gospel music is 
such a huge deal and it's really hard to kind of like break into that culture there if you don't have connections and we didn't and we were also from New York in the south and that kind of ostracized us a little bit so it didn't really happen we were pretty lonely for the three years that we lived there and then we had started traveling more on and off to different churches in the area during those years and at one point we made our way down to Ocean Springs Mississippi and we visited a church there and um, they ended up inviting us back so we went down to Ocean Springs Mississippi and started to be a part of the ministry of that church down there um all of these churches that I was a part of until I was around 20 years old were IFB churches. If you don't know what IFB is, it stands for Independent Fundamental Baptist. Um, you can research that denomination all you want, um, but that's the denomination I was a part of was Independent Fundamental Baptist. I will be referring to it as IFB since it's just easier. Um, when I was eight years old and we lived in South Carolina, I have this very vivid memory of running up the porch steps in our house and I I ran through the screen door and came up to my mom in the kitchen and I said, mom, I want to get saved. And she looked at me and she was like, oh, like you want to get saved? Why? And I said, because Lydia got saved. So I want to get saved. Lydia was my younger sister. She was around six years old at the time, I think. And she had just made a profession of faith a couple nights before um, at a Wednesday night service at our church. And I did not want to be outdone by a six-year-old. So I naturally was thinking, I need to say the sinner's prayer so that I can be saved like her so that she won't be better than me. I think that was probably my train of thought. So I went up to my mom and said this and she put me on her lap and I was kind of preparing mentally to say the sinner's prayer that I was familiar with because I'd heard it my entire life growing up. And instead she said, I don't think you are ready to get saved yet. And then we had this long conversation, but I don't remember any of it because those words are just kind of burned in my brain, you know, as a kid, like, I don't think you're ready to get saved yet. And that really made an imprint on me because I didn't know what to do with that information and I didn't know what was going to make me ready to be saved at that young age. And so from then on, I kind of lived in this state of fear of death and hell, mostly because I, I was like, well, my mom doesn't think I'm ready, so I must not be ready. So I don't know, I don't know how to be ready. So I guess I, you know, I just have to wait it out and hope that I don't die and go to hell at some point between now and the time when I'm ready, whoever, whenever that is, like, I don't know what that looks like. So that went on for the next three-ish years. And during that time, we moved down to Mississippi to be a part of that church. As I said, my dad took up a teaching position at the church school. He was teaching American history and... My mom was homeschooling all of us kids. We did not have a house at this time. Um, actually, now that I think about it, from the time that we lived in South Carolina, when I was, we moved from there when I was 11 years old, I think. And from the time I was 11 years old until the time I was 20 years old, we did not own or rent a house. Like we did not have a steady living place. Um, and I'll get into why that is a little bit more. But when we lived in Mississippi, there was a 
an old, um, we would call it like a fellowship hall at the church. And it was just this big, wide open, tile floored pump, or like, I almost said pumpkin, (laughs) popcorn ceiling room. And we put up curtains and cots. And that was where we lived. That was our house. And there was one bedroom in the back where my parents slept. And then there were just like two bathrooms along the side hallway and a little kitchen. And then this just wide open space where all of us kids would sleep. And there were eight of us when we first moved there. And then the ninth child was born. um, The youngest daughter was born during the years that we lived there. So we were involved in that church for a while. And then we rented an RV from some friends and, or borrowed, I don't even remember if we actually rented it, we just borrowed it. Um, and we went and traveled for a summer and started singing in churches all across the US. We went up the Eastern seaboard, I think, and then came back down, went through Texas a little bit, if I recall correctly. And my mom can probably correct me on this later if she hears this and she's like, you're completely wrong, but it doesn't really matter. Um, so we started traveling and singing in churches, my mom would sing, and then all of us kids would sing with her, and we would sing songs mostly that she had written, but we would do covers of other songs as well, and then we went back to Mississippi in um, September of 2010, I think it is, yes, 2010, Um, and my youngest sister was born, and my dad put us into the church school for that semester so that my mom could take care of the baby, And then that following spring, we bought our own RV, which we affectionately referred to as the Roachmobile. And let me tell you, it lived up to that name. Um, We bought it off just this old lot and it was quite frankly disgusting. Like the air conditioning didn't work while we were driving. So that meant we tried to drive through the night because it was all summer long that we were driving in extreme heat in Texas and Arizona, New Mexico. Um, and it was an adventure, let me tell you. So we got our own RV. All of us kids were sleeping on the floor for the most part because we had a pullout couch. And then we had a dining room table that doubled as a bed during the night. And so I think one or two of us could sleep on those. And then the rest of us slept on the floor. And we lived in that RV for a couple of years or or I might just be getting my timelines incorrect for several months until we were actually able to purchase a 45 foot long bright teal green tour bus and we lived on that tour bus for the next seven ish years um so you get the picture. We were traveling a lot. That's why we didn't have a house is because we were living in RVs. Eventually we just put all of our stuff into a storage unit and we were like, we're not going back to live in any, any place permanent for the next several years. And so we traveled all across the U S and Canada for the next several years, visited all of the lower 48 States. Um, so I still just have to hit Hawaii and Alaska and then I'll have all of them. But we, we traveled during that time and went to about a hundred churches a year. Again, all IFB churches are mostly IFB churches. We sang in an occasional Presbyterian church, but my dad would always tell us not to tell anyone because if IFB pastors knew that we had sung in a Presbyterian church, they probably would not have had us into their church because that's how strict our denomination was. So that's a little bit of the background of how I grew up in the IFB.
Now, if you are familiar with the IFB or grew up in the IFB, you'll know that it is a very closed denomination, a very legalistic denomination. If you're going to be a part of the IFB church, you have to adhere to a lot of rules. First of all, you have to agree 100% with all of their doctrines across the board. Like there's that's non-negotiable. Like you must agree with all the doctrines. And you must use the King James Bible only in order to be a true like IFB person. And you have to adhere to all of these other rules like women are not allowed to wear pants only skirts and dresses and they have to be below the knee or covering both of your knees when you're sitting with your legs crossed that was the guidelines that our church sent out when they when we we still lived in or actually no this wasn't we didn't live in upstate new york at this point but we went back to visit the church there several times and on occasion they would send out i think like quarterly letters to the church outlining all of the guidelines for dress and not only at church but also like at home um, and the guidelines were men and boys have to wear suits and ties at church and they have to keep their hair cut short enough that it doesn't brush against their ears and the girls should always wear skirts that are below the knee and should not have flashy makeup and should not do you know such and such all these different rules we had to follow and it was kind of it would be said in a way that was kind of like you don't have to follow this rule. But there was always this underlying current of like, if you don't follow the rules, you are not one of us. And that was the general feeling, even though it was not necessarily preached, because I've had people come to me and and say like, that was never directly taught. And I'm like, it was always implied though. And so you have to look a little bit deeper, like what's being implied here versus what's actually being said, because what's being implied is more important. And so we had all these rules. So I didn't wear a pair of jeans until I was 20 years old, I think, um, which is just crazy to me now because when I think about those little tiny things being literally seen as salvific issues, it's just mind boggling because I, I just think like, what are we like, what are we doing? What are we arguing about? So anyway, that's how I grew up. And went to hundreds of IFB churches over the years. So backtracking a little bit to when we still lived in Mississippi, I had had this deep fear because of that, um, that fear of not being ready to be saved. And I didn't know what that looked like. And I carried that with me for several years. And one night I was laying in my, my makeshift bedroom with curtain walls and a cot and My sister was beside me in her own cot and she looked over and she was like, hey, I heard some of our friends um, talking about you today, which, you know, nobody likes to hear that they're being talked about. And so I, I was like, oh, you know, what, what were they saying? And she said, they were saying that it's about time you got saved. And that just burned me so deeply because they didn't know the fear that I was already carrying. They didn't know how deeply I wanted to be quote unquote saved or to say the sinner's prayer, but it just hurt me so deeply that they would say that about me. And I, I didn't know what to do with that. I felt really betrayed. And even as a kid was able to like process, like I don't feel safe. Um, but I didn't know how to feel safe because I still had this, this whisper in the back of my head, like, you're not ready. You're not ready. And 
So I remember it was after a Wednesday night church service one night. My dad took me out to get a milkshake with him. And that was like kind of our thing. I was always a daddy's girl growing up. And that was kind of our thing was to get milkshakes. And so we went out and he brought up the topic of salvation. And I just absolutely broke down. And this is something that would happen every time it was brought up or anytime, anytime any sort of vulnerable conversation came up, I would have a complete emotional breakdown. And I think my my parents thought this was kind of just part of who I was. And they were like, you're just so emotional. You just cry at the drop of a hat, you know? Um, But now looking back, I can kind of see that that was more of a trauma response to living in extreme paranoia all the time. And that's what happens when you are just afraid constantly, like any sort of vulnerability makes you feel like you're about to be hurt. And so my dad brought up the topic of salvation to me and I knew that I wanted to do it. I knew that I wanted to follow through, but I just didn't know how to articulate what I was feeling, which was fear. So we left the McDonald's where we were and drove back to church and we sat in the the front of our big 12 passenger van that we had at the time and I sat on his lap and he walked me through the Romans road and talked about it to me but I just distinctly remember being distracted because there was a street light above my head and there were a bunch of bugs buzzing around the street light and I was just very distracted by the fact that there were bugs but I was trying to listen to what my dad was saying but at the same time didn't feel like I was sincerely in the moment because I was distracted and I was afraid and so I basically just repeated the words that he told me to say and said the sinner's prayer a very basic version you know I know I'm a sinner Lord Jesus please come into my heart and save me and I did that and I remember him saying good like you're saved this is awesome like go and write down the date in your bible because this is a strange thing to me now looking back to is that in IFB they really emphasize knowing the the date and the time and the place that you got saved and it's like it's almost like if you know those things then that's how you know you're truly saved versus having an unshakable faith in Christ even if you don't remember the time and the place and the date I'm not sure why they put such a huge emphasis on that but they do and so I had an orange bible a King James bible that was it was orange and I wrote down the date and the time it was July 1st of 2000 2009 I think and or 2010 and I wrote down the date and then I went and told all my friends and my mom and I was I was like yeah I got saved but I still remember to this day as I was saying it it didn't feel sincere to me because I didn't feel any change like when I had said that prayer I expected to maybe feel a bolt of lightning or some great awakening in myself or some great change and it didn't happen and so then I had this terrible fear of like did I make God angry did I say the wrong words did I say the wrong thing is he mad at me now maybe he won't even save me you know and so those thoughts are running through my head now but after I've said the prayer I think I can't articulate this to anyone because then they'll know I'm a fake and then I'll be embarrassed because they're going to think that I didn't actually want to do it even though I do like I do want to follow Jesus but I don't feel like anything has changed because I was a preacher's kid. My mom was a Christian songwriter. I didn't go from, you know, being a party animal to all of a sudden going to church all the time. Like my life didn't change at all. 
I was still the same. I still had the same life. I still went to church the same way I had had before I said the prayer. And so nothing felt different. And even though I had this deep longing in my heart, like I do want to follow Jesus, I still had this incredible fear that if I didn't do X, Y, Z, if I didn't say the right words, I would not be able to follow him. And that was so devastating for me as a child and just debilitating is probably even a better word because I just was in this constant state of fear and doubt and fear on top of the doubt. And I didn't know what to do with those feelings and I didn't know how to articulate them to anyone and I didn't know how to have assurance of my salvation. And pastors would always teach about like, you'll have assurance of your salvation. This is how you know, you know. And they would always bring up like, oh, the date of when you were saved. And so I would look at the date in my Bible and I'd be like, this is the day I was saved. And it didn't help. Um, I remember for years after that, up until my mid-teens even, I would lay awake at night and just cry and beg God not to let me die and go to hell. And I was terrified of death. And like every little thing, I was just like, oh my goodness, like what if I die? Like constantly thinking about like, what if I die and go to hell? And then I have to like, then it'll be too late. Like then everyone will know I'm a fake. And just this crippling fear that was not ever put on me by God, but was put on me by the churches that were trying to, you know, make me fit into this mold of what they assumed was a perfect Christian. And it didn't, it wasn't working for me. So I lived in that kind of fear for the next several years as we were traveling and doing ministry. And the worst part of it was I was the I was the pastor's kid I was the celebrity Christian you know my mom was fairly well known throughout IFB and people knew her songs they knew her music and they would get excited when we would come sometimes people would ask us to sign their um their sheet music books and things like that which is just silly looking back now because I'm like I was nobody special but at the time it was difficult because people would say things, mom, moms would come up to me with their little girls and they would say things like, I would love for my daughter to be like you when she grows up. And I would hear them say that and it would just make me so afraid because I would think, well, you don't know that I am struggling with all this fear and this doubt and this um, just like confusion about even who I am in Christ. Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing but outwardly would have this facade of like, yeah, that's so great. I am doing all the right things, but you don't know it's not working for me. And that went on for several years until I started to question what I was believing and what I was following. And it wasn't up until I was around, oh my gosh, 18 or 19 years old, I think that I started questioning. And there was one point, um, that I distinctly remember I said something in my in my mind like I I had this difficult situation something happened that I was upset about and I just remember that I I said what I would have considered a swear word in my mind like I didn't even audibly utter it but I said it in my mind and I just had this moment of like oh I'm definitely going to hell Like if my first thought was something that I would consider a swear word, which now I would not consider a swear word, but back then, oh, it was big. I, I I was like, oh my goodness, I am for sure not a Christian. Like there's no way that God 
sees me as one of his children, which is just ridiculous to me now because I know that assurance of salvation doesn't come from, you know, doing all the right things. But at the time, it was a big deal. And little things like that would happen all the time, and I wouldn't know what to do with it, and I never would articulate it to anyone because vulnerability was already something that I struggled with. And then I remember distinctly when I was probably 16 or 17, right before I started to actually question things, I met this girl at a church we were at, and she was probably about the age I am now, so probably around 25. And when you're a teenager and you meet, you know, a cool hip 25 year old you're just like oh my goodness you are so cool and I want to be like you and I remember feeling like that about her and I just thought she was so cool and so she sat down with me and started having this conversation and getting me to unpack some things with her and I had had this crush on this boy for a long time and I really thought I was in love with him and I um was in a hard place because my parents did not approve of him. And that just was the most difficult thing for me ever. But I had never really articulated my feelings about that to anyone. So I sat down with this girl who I didn't know and poured out my heart to her. And I remember I cried and that was not something I typically did. I was not usually vulnerable like that. And I poured out everything I was feeling and all of my hurt and anxiety And all of it just came tumbling out and she heard me and then she prayed for me and I felt like just so comforted by that. And so then I remember the next day she was in a room full of people and I was there and I don't even remember the course of the conversation, but at one point she looked at me in the crowd of people and she said, yeah, I think I remember you like crying about something yesterday, right? And laughed about it. And that just devastated me. And I remember walking out of that room and going off by myself somewhere and just crying and feeling so betrayed by that and so hurt. Which, by the way, I think was totally valid because as a 25-year-old woman, I cannot imagine taking advantage of a 16-year-old kid like that. Like, I, I lead youth group girls who are almost that age now and I cannot imagine humiliating them in front of a group of people after they were vulnerable with me that would that is just the worst thing that you can possibly do to a teenager so um so I think I was totally valid in feeling that kind of brokenness but man it hurt so bad and I remember from that moment on thinking I cannot be vulnerable I cannot be vulnerable with people. I cannot be vulnerable with my parents. I cannot be vulnerable with God because I will be hurt. If I open myself up, I will be hurt. And that is something that I'm still unpacking. Honestly, like I had to, it's taken a long, long time for me to figure out what it actually looks like to be vulnerable and to actually trust people and to even trust God. So put that on top of the doubt and then that on top of the fear that I was feeling and it was just this crushing weight. And so I was doing all the right things, reading the right Bible, wearing the right clothes, listening to the right music. And I remember watching a movie once where there was a missionary who'd gone to a foreign country and was preaching the gospel there. And I remember watching this movie with my family and seeing these people who had never heard about Jesus 
coming to Christ and rejoicing and experiencing freedom. And I remember thinking, how can they truly experience what it means to be a Christian and how can they truly be saved if they don't have the King James Bible translated into their language? Like that was a legitimate thought that I had. And I know to a lot of people that might sound crazy and it is crazy, but at the time it made total sense to me. And I was like, this is a valid thought because I've been told that the King James Bible is the only correct interpretation of the Bible. It's God's preserved word. And I don't understand how people could come to a knowledge of God without the King James Bible because I'd always been taught the King James Bible is the one way to go. And we were even taught that you couldn't be saved if you read another version of the Bible because a lot of IFB churches and pastors will teach that other versions take out the blood of Christ or take out the deity of Jesus. And that's simply not true. There are some versions that I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but the majority of them do not take out the core doctrines of Christianity. But that's a discussion for another time. So anyway, I started having these these thoughts and these questions about the King James Bible. And I remember I was sitting with one of my best friends at the time, and I was up back in upstate New York at my home church. And I was sitting in her bedroom. We were getting ready for a Wednesday night service. And I just started kind of, you know, expressing these doubts that I had. Because I I thought, surely if I'm having these doubts, other people are having them too. Um, they were not. And I, I just remember saying something to her like, yeah, I think people can get saved if they read a different version of the Bible. And she looked at me like I had just renounced Christianity. She looked at like a tree full of owls. She... She didn't even say anything at first, and then she was just she was just so shocked. And then I think she mumbled something about how I could potentially be, you know, saying a heresy. And so I, I was confused by that because I was I was like, no, I think it just makes sense. Like if someone only has, you know, like an ESV Bible or an NIV in their language, surely God can use that if it's his word right? Because our, like, who are we to say that God is limited to one version of the Bible? And she, she was like, no, 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 we don't question that. It's, it's always just the King James. Like we don't, we don't ask questions like that. So that pushed me even further into questioning because I've always been more independent and more inquisitive. And I've always really needed people to show me. I'm like, you need to show me why I believe what I believe. And that's how I was all my growing up. I was like, if you can show me why I should believe this and you can back it up, then I'm on board. But if you can't tell me why, if you can't show me why I need to believe this, then I'm out. So I started doing that with a lot more of the things I'd been taught. So once it was the King James Bible, which is the foundation of the IFB faith, it's like, if you start to question the King James Bible, you will start to question everything else because that is the foundation. So the number one no-no in IFB is don't question the King James Bible because you'll start questioning everything else. And they'll warn against that all the time. But they're right. You will start questioning everything else and you will start discovering that you were lied to. They don't want that, obviously. This started happening to me across the board. I, I was looking at issues like skirts and dresses for women and like what does it look like for women to be modest and I just started having all of these questions like just this 
torrential rain of questions. During this time, I had also still, I still had that crush that I talked about earlier. And I really liked this, this boy. He was from my home church in New York and, um, we had a mutual interest, but my parents were not approving of that. And I, the most rebellious I ever was in my life was during that time when I really just tried to push for that relationship to work and it never came to fruition. And honestly, now I thank God for that because it was not the right thing. And I was being foolish, um, in the pursuit of that. But at the time it felt like a much bigger deal to me. So fast forward up until, um, 2017, 2018, we had still been traveling during this time. And in, um, I think it was the summer of 2017, my mom had, she had just had my, her last, um, child. So my youngest brother, and we were still traveling during that summer and we were hit with a terrible, um, bout of the whooping cough and my whole family got it except for me and my mom and the baby had it really really bad and so he actually had to be life flighted from Wyoming which is where we were we were in the middle of Wyoming he had to be life flighted from where we were to Salt Lake City Utah and he was in a children's hospital there and then after that happened it was just really scary like we thought we were going to lose him and it was it was a very scary time for our family and after that, we made our way to the Midwest and we found ourselves um, in that area of the country. And there was a church that asked my dad to be the assistant pastor. And we were a pretty good fit for the position. And so my dad ended up taking it. And along with the scare from being sick over the summer, we canceled the rest of our tour unexpectedly and came off the road. And that was such an abrupt change for our family because we thought we would be traveling forever like you know once you've been doing it for a certain amount of time you're just like I guess this is our life now like this is what we do and so we came off the road and settled down in the midwest and we were the assistant pastors at the church um, where my dad was for three years and that was when I really started to ask the questions out loud because for a long time I had them inside and I'd internalized all these things and I, I wasn't actually articulating them, but I remember one day I was in the van with my dad and I just came right out and said, I was like, why am I not allowed to wear jeans? Like, I, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me. I haven't found it in the Bible, so I need you to show it to me so that I can believe it because I've been told it's in there. But if it's not, then I'm, I'm not going to believe it anymore. You know, and I was at this point an adult. And so I was, I was very much pushing for it. Like I'm an adult and I will make my own decision, even though that was very against the IFB teachings of like how women should conduct themselves because we were always taught, like you just do exactly what your father says unconditionally, no questions asked. And, um, until you get married and then you belong to your husband and then he tells you what to think. He gives you all your opinions. You don't have agency as a woman. So for me to even say like, I'm going to go against what I've been taught, if I don't think it's true, according to the Bible, that was like a huge, very scary thing for me to say. Um, but my dad kind of took it in stride and um, he started to try to explain like why we only wore skirts and dresses. But I was like, no, I need you to show me in the Bible where it says this. And he couldn't. 
And so then we started to kind of look at it together and try to discover what the Bible actually said. And he ended up coming to agreement with me and saying, yeah, it's not in there. Like, I don't, I can't find it. And that was kind of the turning point for, I think, our family in a lot of ways. There were other things that were happening. Like, it wasn't just because of my questioning. Like, my parents were never 100% going with the flow of IFB. As I said earlier, like we would go to Presbyterian churches every once in a while, which was a huge, huge no-no because in IFB, they teach that they are the only right Christians. Like if you have been in the IFB or are in IFB, then you know that the IFB church truly believes that that is the one way to be a Christian. There is no other way. And they won't explicitly say that, but what they will say is that if you are truly a Christian, then you will do X, Y, Z. So they won't say you need to be saved or you need to do X, Y, Z to be a Christian. Like they won't say if you're a woman, you need to wear skirts and dresses only in order to be a Christian. But what they will say is if you are a truly Christian woman, you will wear skirts and dresses only. And so it's kind of this implied thing. It's not like, oh, you need to read the King James Version to be saved. But they'll say, if you are truly saved, you will read the King James Version. Does that make sense? And so it always comes back to this. If you are truly saved, you will do all of these things that we say you should do. Rather than you are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And this is why it's such a dangerous ideology because they'll even preach against legalism and they'll say like, I'm not a legalist. Like you're calling me a legalist, but I don't believe that you need to do such and such to be saved, but it's always implied in the background. And that's why it's so harmful because it it really is easy to get swept up in because it feels, it feels good to those who have come out of um, like a worldly background. I always say that Legalism feels really safe to those who grew up in a predominantly secular or quote-unquote worldly background, whereas to those who grew up in the church, they can see more easily the harmful tendencies of legalism and how it can be such a cage and such a binding anti-gospel thing. Um, so anyway, I started asking these questions and started asking my dad things. And I eventually said like, enough is enough. I'm not doing this anymore. And so during that time, the past couple of years, I had started blogging on, um, online. I just had a blog for like teen girls who are my age. And I also was starting to do some Instagram content creating and my, best friend who the one who I had said all that stuff about the King James Bible to she found my Instagram and stumbled upon a picture of me standing with a group of friends or I think I was actually sitting on a dock by a lake and in the photo I'm wearing a pair of black board shorts and a very modest tank top but that was considered extremely immodest and she called me out on it and said a whole bunch of things in this email that she sent me about how I was, you know, she was, it was very Padme-esque, very like, you're going down a path I can't follow. And that really um, threw me for a loop because I hadn't expected that to happen because I, I have, I have really good parents who trained me that not 
everyone in other denominations is not a Christian. Like I had a dad who was willing to reach out to other people in other denominations who didn't look like us. And even though I didn't necessarily understand that or agree with it at the time, he would always encourage us to think outside of ourselves and outside of the box we were raised in, even though we were still IFB. I had, I still have a good dad who was always a skeptic of just following the status quo. And so I'm really thankful for that now because it allowed us to maintain a healthy relationship even when we didn't see eye to eye. But that being said, he instilled in me the idea that people could be connected by Jesus even if they weren't connected by having everything else in common. But that is not... That is not an overarching teaching of IFB. In IFB, you have to do everything the same or else you cannot be, you know, connected or in true unity. Or they'll pretend that you are, but you won't be allowed to teach a Sunday school class. You won't be allowed to sing in church. You won't be allowed to hold any sort of leadership position um, if you don't follow the status quo. You know, you'll be subtly silenced. And so I was really thrown by my friend saying all of these things to me because I thought we were connected by our our oneness in Christ. But it turns out we were connected by all of the things that I was doing to look right and to look like everyone else. And that was something that I was not prepared to be confronted with. And so I ended up writing her back. I wrote a very gracious email explaining my stance, how God had been showing me all these things. And I was excited about it because I was starting to experience the freedom that Jesus offers. And I was living less in fear and less in doubt. And I was starting to understand like this is not what it's about. Like it's not about following all the right rules. It's about having a relationship with God, a personal, intimate relationship with God. And so I wrote her back and I said all of these things to her and I I invited her to join me on this journey. And and what I got back was a scathing response, gaslighting, um, slut-shaming me. I was called a harlot in... In that email, I was called two-faced and I was accused of faking our friendship. I was just absolutely thrown under the bus and that hurt me so badly. As a young adult, um, I just remember crying over it for days because when you lose a friendship, even if you can see that you're, you're going separate ways... It's still so, so painful. And this was someone who I'd known since I was a little girl. And what was really sad about this is that all my other friends who I'd also known since I was born walked out on me the same the same day, the same week. Um, it was like, just like a curtain fell and all of a sudden it was like, this chapter of your life is over. And that was not something I was prepared for especially as someone who had just come off the road. All of my friends were long distance. I didn't have a single friend in the city where I lived now. I was the only person at my church who was my age because we were in a really small church. And all of a sudden I found myself completely alone. I didn't even have those connections. These were people who I'd been pen pals with for years, had so many letters, so many memories, so many photos, and all of a sudden just completely gone, cut off, shunned. 
And that was really devastating. And on top of that, just to make it even better, the young man on whom I had had a crush um, decided to look me up on Instagram and wrote a just a horrible, basically like a defamation letter to my dad about me, um, which was not a wise decision on his part because no one loves me more than my father. And so if you have a disagreement with me or uh, something that you don't like about me, I promise you my dad is not the person to take that to because he will not be on your side. But that anyway, that's beside the point. Um, This young man slandered me to my dad and said I was self-centered and stuck up and condescending and immodest and gross and said all of these horrible things about me. And my dad was just taken back by that because he, um, he knew me and he knew that I wasn't actually all of those things. And so we had this whole conversation about it and, um, I was really, really, really hurt. And there was more that was going on behind the scenes that I had not been aware of the entire time with that young man. There were struggles that he was having in his own life that he had never confessed to secret sins and things like that. It's not my job to discuss those things but it wasn't just the fact that he didn't like the things I was posting on Instagram, which were fairly innocent photos of Bible studies and things. It was nothing scandalous at all. Um, So that really hurt. Being betrayed and shunned like that really, really hurt. But there was a person who didn't leave me in all of that, and it was Jesus. And I remember through all the heartbreak and the sadness and the lostness of being betrayed, I felt really um, caught up by God and just carried. And he gently just kind of scooped me up and held me under his wing. And he was like, hey, you're going to be okay. And I can't even describe the kind of peace that I felt through that because he just confirmed constantly, you are doing the right thing. You are following the right path. Like, I know it's hard. I know you don't understand. I know that you don't know where this is going, but you just have to keep walking. You just have to keep going. And at one point I had this conversation with him and I, I said, I like, why is this so hard? Why, why have I felt so much fear and so much doubt all this time? I've been trying to do all the right things. I don't understand. And he said, you have to stop trying to do a work that has already been done for you. Like my son, died on the cross to save you, to wipe out your sin, to completely forgive you and not only forgive you, but to heal you by his wounds, you are healed, you know? And, and I knew this deep in my heart. I knew that this was true. And I also had to realize that I had had no room to really hold on to Jesus because my hands were full of the things I was trying to do to impress him. And I had to let all of those things go and cling only to Christ And only then did I find the kind of assurance that I had been looking for my entire life. And let me tell you, since that moment with God, I have not once doubted my salvation. And that doesn't mean that I haven't had times of drought or times of um, just like dryness in in my walk with God where I feel a little bit far from him. That doesn't mean that I haven't had struggles or haven't had difficult seasons. I have. I've had many of them. But I have not doubted that I belong to him because I know that he is my father and that there is nothing that can take that identity from me. And it 
it's just such a beautiful thing and something I'm so thankful for, even though I had to go through just such a difficult season to get where I am now. Um, that journey has been ultimately the most beautiful I've ever walked through. Now that's pretty much an overview of my testimony and at some point I will get into different aspects of it as I continue to make this podcast. There will be episodes that dig into some of the things, especially like what it's like to be a woman in the IFB and how it feels to not have any agency um but i get a lot of questions about my parents and my relationship with them and whether or not they're still part of the ifb and you know where am i now where are they now um so i figured i would just answer those right here so that you don't have to send them in later um my parents stayed at the church where my dad was pastoring for um not even quite a year after i left i left his church in 2019 in september of 2019 and started going to a different non-denominational local church where i live and i went there until i found another church where i'm at now so i've been at my current church which is a non-denominational church for about three years now and then my parents ended up or my dad ended up resigning Um, from his pastorate position in the summer of 2020 and then they ended up going to the church that I attend until they moved down to Greenville, South Carolina where they live now and that was in August of this year. So they are doing really well and they're on their own faith journey and discovery of life outside of IFB and we've, we've all taken this journey at different strides and I'm really proud of them and the growth that I've seen in them because it it truly is not an easy thing to come out of especially when you've been in it for 30 plus years like they had been it's not an easy thing to let go of and my dad was not saved um, or he was (laughs) he was not raised I should say in a Christian home and so he was discipled into the IFB so that was the only Christianity he knew so for him to walk away from that and reinvent himself outside of it after being discipled in it for 30 years is just incredible. And so to my father, if you're listening to this, I'm really proud of you. And I've just been so excited to see the growth that God has brought. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the story. That's where I came from. And now I am serving at a non-denominational church. I lead worship um, on the worship team and I also am in the youth group ministry and it's been such a blessing. Um, On top of that, I also write newsletters and I try to share my story on Instagram at Woman of Valor. So you can follow me along there and see more of my testimony there, more little bits and pieces of um, where I've come from. And I talk about different topics a little bit more in depth over there, but I will be unpacking more in this podcast as I get into it, as I said. So thank you so much for listening to this episode, for listening to my testimony If you have a similar testimony of coming out of fundamentalism and you'd like to share that, you can message me on my Instagram and I would love to hear your testimony. It's always so great to connect with other people who have a similar story and who are finding freedom and finding God outside of the IFB. It's just one of the most encouraging things 
and that I've ever experienced. So I'm humbled that my story has been able to reach other people and I hope that is encouraging to you and that it empowers you to know that you can share your own story and that your story matters to God and that you are not alone. And I know it can feel really lonely sometimes, but you're not alone. God is with you. He is on your side. He is fighting your battles and it is so worth it. Like this journey that you're on, if you are coming out of fundamentalism or you're having these questions, I want you to know that they are not a small thing to God and that he hears all of them and he has answers for all of them. And there is no question that scares him. The truth does not become untrue by being questioned. So I want to encourage you to keep questioning, keep asking, keep looking for God outside of the things you've been taught about him and you will find him he will reveal himself to you so take heart you are not alone there are so many people who are on this journey right along with you um, and you can find a, a huge community of people who can encourage you but that's all for today and i will see you on the next episode